Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Uh, if you're a visitor or whether you've been here or this is your home, uh, we're glad that you're here. We, wanna, we want to welcome you. Uh, and also, welcome to spring. We hope. We hope, right? Kind of maybe uh, really foolish for a Minnesotan to say welcome to spring. But uh, a whole week of 50s and even 60s. Sounds great. Um, so you guys must be the... It was tough to get up an hour early, or I forgot to set my clock ahead. Maybe not. The first, first service was much, much smaller this morning. So, But we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you came. And uh, Anyway, again, welcome to Hiawatha Church. We have been in a series in the book of Song of Solomon for almost two months now. And if you know anything about the book or have been around for the past two months, you know that the book of Song of Solomon is... A love story, as Chris has been putting it, it's a love dialogue between the two main characters, between uh, the king, Solomon, and his uh, fiance, his, his now bride, uh, the queen. And as with many love stories, there's parts that are PG, and there's also parts that are a little more PG-13, even if the story is, is beautiful and, and pure and sinless. And so today's sermon, and also next week's, the content is going to be a little bit more adult, a little bit more PG-13 than other sermons that we've had in this series. So if you're a parent in the service with your kid, uh, we just want you to know that, and uh, you can make whatever choice you'd like to, but we want to uh, be very open with where we're going this morning. Before we begin our passage, before we look at Song of Solomon 4 today, I want you to think about what what emotions, what words come to mind when you think of the word sex? Do you think of, of, of mystery? Do you think of love, pleasure, excitement, intimacy, closeness? Or maybe do you think of fear or intimidation or maybe pain? Our personal experiences, our relationship with others, the way we were brought up, affect a great deal both our view as well as our feelings and thoughts of what sex is, as well as how we should view it and the boundaries surrounding it. In this series, we've seen how God is the creator. He's the author. He's the giver of relationships and marriage and intimacy and even of sex. God isn't embarrassed by it. He didn't just say, you know, oh, what, what are Adam and Eve doing over there? Oh my gosh, didn't think of that. But rather, he created it. He wanted uh, to give it to humanity, the pinnacle of his creation, as a gift from a loving father. So sex is not only something that's not bad in and of itself, or wrong, or shameful, but it's actually something that can uh, honor God something that can actually be done in a worshipful manner. It's a gift given to us by our Heavenly Father. So to kind of help us wrap our, wrap our heads around this idea of, of how a father gives a good gift and, and how we should view that, um, I'm going to share just briefly what we did this weekend. So I have a son. He uh, just turned two this weekend. His, his name is, or this past week, his name is Charlie. And... Uh, some of you have been complaining I haven't been putting enough Charlie pictures in my sermon, so, so there you go. But uh, Amy, my wife, and I gave him a, a tricycle, you know, his first bike, and uh, got to play with him. 
And so uh, I gave my son a gift out of my love for him. The reason that I gave him something good is because I love him. It's, it's an expression of my love for him. And when a father gives a gift, he, he wants two things out of it. First of all, he wants his son, he wants his child to enjoy the gift. That's the point of the gift. I didn't give Charlie a tricycle and flip it on its side and say, just look, just look. Don't ride it, don't play with it. And so uh, loving parents give their children gifts because they want them to enjoy it, and they also want them to be safe. So they put some guidelines around it. And also what they do is they both show the child how to use the gift, and they give them some parameters, some guidelines, so that they stay safe. So they want maximum enjoyment as well as safety. And so with Charlie, I didn't just show him a picture of a bike or just tip the bike over on the side. Or I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't have him put his fingers in the wheels or run over his toes with the bicycle. And I didn't just say things. I didn't just say, this is a bike, go play with it. But I actually even demonstrated or helped show him uh, how you use a bike, how you have fun with the bike, and how you are safe with the bike. So just like that, view, view how godly, good parents give their children gifts. In that same way, view marriage and relationships, and intimacy, and sex. It's a gift from our God to us, and he wants us to have maximum enjoyment, and he wants us to be safe. So he puts some guidelines around it. He tells us how it should best be used, and he even give us, gives us examples, and we're going to see one of those in Song of Solomon 4, as he, as he shows us a picture of a, of a wedding night and gives us an example of how uh, this gift of sex can be a safe place and also... Uh, receive maximum enjoyment and pleasure. And just like when Charlie is playing with his bike and I see his face light up and he's loving it, it gives me pleasure and joy as a father to see my child using a gift, enjoying a gift that I have given him. And God delights in that as well. Matt Chandler, a pastor and author, writes, relationships, sex, and intimacy are God's ideas. And even though our selfish rebellion fractured God's good design, God reconciled everything back to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. This includes sex and relationships. Our gracious God has not left us in the dark. So that's where we're going to get a glimpse of today in Song of Solomon 4. We're going to see a relationship and intimacy that by God's grace is glorifying to him. And that's fulfilling, uniting, and joyful for the couple. So today we're in... Song of Solomon chapter 4. So the previous uh, three chapters, just to get you caught up in case you haven't been around, the previous three chapters we've seen uh, King Solomon and his fiancée at the time. We've seen them flirt in court. We've seen them compliment each other. We've seen them dream of, of their wedding and their marriage and when they can finally be together. And we've seen them long for this physical separation, this emotional separation to finally come to an end. Last week, we saw a glimpse of the wedding ceremony. We saw the, the groom, King Solomon, come up out of the wilderness to the wedding uh, to greet his bride in, in a redemptive love. And today, we're going to read about the beginning of their wedding night. We'll be in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 today. And I'm untitling our sermon, There is no flaw in you. We'll see that description come up in this passage as the king says this to his bride on their wedding night. 
And we're going to see that there's an even more meaningful, even more real, powerful meaning when we see Jesus speak the same phrase over his bride, which is us, Christ, which is us, the church. So before we, we jump into Song of Solomon 4, I want to give us uh, just a, a few quick disclaimers. There's so much we could say about this topic, but I want to give us a few disclaimers so, so you hear where we're going and, and what I'm not saying. First of all, this sermon, even though it's about a married couple on their honeymoon, essentially, this passage is not just for married couples. Lots of you, lots of you in this room are not married, but statistically, 90% of, of people will get married sometime in their lifetime, so 90% of, of, of you uh, sometime will probably get married, and so uh, this is, if you're not married yet, this is great practice or great understanding uh, for you to, to view marriage correctly, to understand what marriage is going to be about, to prepare yourself for an upcoming, married, uh, upcoming marriage. And even if you never get married, in Hebrews 13, there's a, an encouragement written to the church that they view marriage correctly, that they, that they hold marriage in high regard, not because it's uh, necessarily in and of itself so great, but because it's a reflection of the gospel, because it's a, a dramatization, it's a, it's a picture of Jesus loving his church. And we're going to see where that comes from in a few different passages. But also, again, don't feel like if you're single that we're looking down on you at all. Jesus was single his entire life. The Apostle Paul was single at least part of his life. And, the, and singleness is actually a gift given to people, given to everyone for a time, uh, given by God. And uh, if you're really interested in this, we have two sermons uh, in the past year that we've uh, preached here on singleness. And uh, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and, and listen to those if you haven't yet, if you're kind of wondering how does... The gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. How do those, how do those two relate? All right, let's begin. So we're first going to study this passage uh, kind of through a, a human lens. So what can we learn about relationships, about marriage, about sex from Song of Solomon 4? So again, this is uh, the wedding night. Starting in verses 1 uh, through 8. He, so King Solomon, the groom is speaking to his bride, admiring her beauty. Verse 1, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. And not one, not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Senir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. So I actually kind of, you know, reading this passage, you're like, wow, she's really beautiful. She's, you know, amazing. I actually uh, Google searched 
uh, Google image searched this woman. Uh, probably a dangerous thing to do. Uh, you know, the, 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 the bride on her honeymoon in Song of Solomon 4, Google image search. So I don't, I don't recommend you do it, but I actually found a pretty good image of that that I wanted to show you. So that's, that's what she looks like. We're actually going to zoom up a little bit so you can see it even, even clearer. So you see her, you know, her goat hair and her sheep teeth and her neck as a tower. Her eyes are doves. Really beautiful, right? The point here is that when taken literal, she's actually not beautiful, right? And so that's not what's going on here. Song, or Solomon is using poetry. He's using poetic language to show and to describe his wife's beauty here. So if we just read it literally, it's not actually beautiful, but we need to see it as poetry. So now to set the stage for our passage today, they're married. So we last week we, we saw a glimpse of their wedding ceremony. Now they're married. He calls her his bride in verse 6, and they're about to consummate their married. And like I said earlier, we're going to be seeing today a godly description of what sex is within the context of marriage. And, and later in Song of Solomon, we're going to see that they have conflict, that they're not perfect, that they hurt each other. So just like every other couple in the world, they have issues, they're not perfect, they have problems. But in Song of Solomon 4 especially, we get to see this glimpse of a godly relationship, a godly description of sex. Great lovemaking, deep intimacy, godly sex is really hard work and takes a lot of practice, mutual love, service, and sacrifice. I tell people who I'm uh, counseling, married couples or premarital counseling, Tell them often, the hardest thing you're going to do in your life is to have a great marriage. It's really, really hard. You, you can maybe have a marriage that's decent or that, you know, you, you stay faithful to each other to the end. But to have a really great marriage, it's going to be the hardest thing you're going to do in your life. It takes lots and lots of work. So I don't want to communicate today that what we see in Song of Solomon 4 is easy. Because it's not. It's not easy. Or... What we see today, if that doesn't describe your love life with your spouse or your view that you have of sex, I don't want you to feel hopeless or judged. We all have work to do in this area, and all of us, our view of sex and intimacy uh, with our spouse can always grow. So I don't want us to be discouraged or feel hopeless here, but rather see an example and, uh, that we can strive towards. So today we're going to begin to learn about what godly sex is. We actually have an example that we're going to get to see that, can, uh, that we can strive towards. We're going to focus on uh, three aspects of sex, godly sex, within the context of marriage that we see in Song of Solomon for today. Again, that's designed, God-designed, God-given, so that we'd have both pleasure and intimacy and closeness as well as safety. All right, the first thing we see in song four is, godly sex provides security, safety, and protection. So being naked can bring about lots of fear, lots of shame, loneliness, feelings of isolation. We've already seen that this bride, the woman, is, is insecure about her body. Earlier on, in, at the beginning of, of Song of Solomon, we see that she uh, shares that she has dark skin, and it's and it's dark because 
she has been forced by her brothers to work out in the vineyard. So unlike our culture, uh, in their culture, it was actually better to be, to be light-skinned because it showed that you were not just a common laborer, that you were important. You didn't have to work outside in the sun. So she comes to Solomon at the beginning of this story, and she says, I am dark, and don't gaze upon me because I'm insecure about my skin. I'm insecure about my body. She dislikes aspects of her body. She's embarrassed by it. And now, on her wedding night, she's literally bearing it all. Now, how does he respond? Her husband knows this, her insecurities, her fears. How is he removing those fears? How does he help with her insecurities and her feelings of inadequacy? He knows those insecurities, those flaws that she thinks that she has. And look how much time that he chooses to spend on adoring her on comforting her, on making her feel safe and desired, wanted and protected. Verse after verse after verse, he affirms her beauty. You think that you are flawed, but you're not. You think that you're unbeautiful, but you're not. And he reminds her again and again and again in detail and in poetry. She was, in, she was insecure and, and probably is still struggling with that insecurity, but when she's with her husband, she forgets that. She begins to forget that. He reminds her of who she is, that she's the wife of the king, that she's been chosen by the king. King Solomon probably could have had any woman in the entire nation that he wanted, but he chose her, and he reminds her of that, that she is chosen above all women. And while he's reminding her of his love for her, she stops comparing herself to others. She rests and is intoxicated in his love. Genesis 2, when God creates the world, he creates uh, mankind, male and female, Adam and Eve, and in this beautiful, poetic, uh, wedding-like language, we see God create Eve and then walk his daughter down the aisle in the garden and give her over to Adam, her husband. And that passage ends with this description. They were naked and without shame. They were not ashamed. So that's God's original design for marriage, both physically as well as relationally and emotionally, spiritually, that couples, when they're united in marriage, that they can be physically naked and without shame, that they can be relationally naked and not be afraid, that they can be vulnerable and real and share their true selves and not be judged, but rather welcomed and loved. So that's before sin enters the world. We see a great example of, of God's original design, his original intention. And that's what we're trying, or that's what we're seeing here in Song of Solomon 4, and that's what a godly, uh, godly sex and godly marriage provides security, safety, protection, where, where nakedness, all different kinds of nakedness within this commitment of marriage, there's no shame, there's no fear. In verse 8, Solomon calls his bride out of danger. And into safety. He tells her, come with me. Come with me out of danger. Out of these mountains. Out of the reach of lions and leopards that would harm you. Come with me to safety. We see here that a location is not given. In verse 8, there isn't a place that he's calling her to. He doesn't say, come with me into safety. Into Jerusalem or into the palace. But rather, a specific place is not named. Safety is when she is with him. 
So practically, this, this goes both ways. It goes for husbands and wives as well, but especially for husbands. Just like we saw in our passage here today, husbands, are you doing this for your bride? Are you providing a safe, secure place for your wife, both inside and outside of the bedroom? Are you working at your wife? Are you, are you working at making your wife feel special, feeling wanted by you, desired and chosen above all other women? Are you being intentional about removing your wife's fears? Creating a relationship that, that's described as, as being full of safety and security and protection goes both ways. Both partners need to be very honest with each other and vulnerable and, and, and share about what their fears and what their securities are. Both sides need to listen really well and understand each other. Work together to remove all aspects of fear, isolation, intimidation, and shame in your marriage. So the first thing we see is godly sex provides security, safety, and protection. Second thing we see, godly sex is interpersonal. It's relational. Our culture tells us that sex not only can be done apart from a relationship, but that it's often even better that way. Free of, of responsibility, free of strings. Our culture teaches us that, that sex uh, is just physical and can be completely void of relationship. Also in a culture that is saturated with pornography, strip clubs, and the like, sex is viewed by many as something that, is something that is detached from any relationship and even personhood. They see a woman or they see a man just as a thing, just as an object, just as something that I can use to get something out of, rather than seeing them as a person, rather than seeing them as an image bearer of God. But that's not what God has planned for marriage, nor is that what we see in Song of Solomon 4. It's not just two bodies physically being together, but it's the uniting of two people, the uniting of two souls. In verse 1, you see Solomon talking to a person, not just a thing. He calls her by name. He calls her love. Later, he calls her his bride. He's not just mesmerized by any naked body standing in front of him, but his wife. He speaks to his bride, and he summarizes what he sees he calls her beautiful multiple times, and then he begins to speak in detail, great detail, describing each and every aspect of her beauty. He begins by complimenting her eyes, and then her hair, and then slowly working down her body, acknowledging and praising her colors, her curves, and her contrasts. And you see that he's romantic with her. He doesn't just start when he wants or when they're courting, when they're dating, or when they're engaged. He doesn't just use uh, romance and poetry to get something out of her, get something he wants. He doesn't just act like this very great gentleman with these beautiful songs describing her beauty just to get her in bed. But he chooses to use that to, to demonstrate, to show his bride that he has great love for her. Not another woman, but her. He desires for her to feel special and loved, noticed, and wanted. One of the greatest enemies that this type of acceptance and intimacy and unity in marriage 
is pornography. It lies and tells us that sex actually isn't relational. It's not personal, but rather it's just a means to an end, just an animalistic desire that we can't help. I'm going to tell you now, pornography brings about destruction. I can prove this to you many ways. I can prove it to you by sharing the countless guys that I've counseled and talked with, how they've shared how it has degraded their view of women in general, how it's given them unrealistic expectations of marriage and of the female body and of sex, and how it has deeply, deeply wounded their wives, their girlfriends. I could also prove to you how destructive pornography is by giving you statistics about how nearly every person who starts viewing pornography, it, it, it leads to addiction and destroys relationships and destroys how men view women. It's becoming so popular and so just culturally understood, the destruction of pornography, that even secular uh, organizations like Fight the New Drug, as well as magazines like GQ, put out articles saying and describing the destruction and the problems that uh, viewing and being addicted to pornography brings. Even movie star Russell Brand posted a video just a few weeks ago about the dangers of looking at pornography. And finally, I could prove to you how destructive pornography is by telling you and explaining how per, uh, viewing pornography fuels prostitution and sex trafficking. And all those are really important and really valid and really real reasons but this morning I'm going to argue from a different reason, a gospel reason, about why pornography is so destructive, both from Song of Solomon 4 as well as from the gospel. So if marriage, and we're going to look at this in, in uh, Ephesians 5, if marriage is ultimately not about us, ultimately not about you, but rather a picture of Christ and his church, about how God loves his covenant people, if that's what marriage ultimately is about, then what does a husband looking at pornography, what does that demonstrate to the world? It demonstrates to her, to himself, to the people who know about it, to the world that looks in and sees a husband being unfaithful to his wife by lusting after pornography. It tells the world, it tells the story that Jesus is an unfaithful Savior. That when you're no longer pleasing to him, no longer beautiful to him, no longer up to his standard, that he's going to leave you. That he's going to find someone better, that can serve him better, that looks better, that's more pleasing to him. What does it say when a wife chooses pornography or a dirty romance novel over her husband? What story does that tell? It tells that the church thinks that Jesus isn't enough that we think that there's actually really something better out there than Jesus Christ. That, yeah, he's good for some things, for some security, for some protection, for some, for some love, but that we don't really need him or that there's something better out there. King Solomon ends his poetic description of his wife's beauty in verse 7. He summarizes again his love for her. His description of her body's bookended by marveling at her beauty. He tells her that she is altogether beautiful. Everything about her is beautiful to him. She is fully beautiful, completely beautiful. In his eyes, she's perfect. He finishes his description of his bride by summarizing her beauty. 
There's no flaw in you. We know that she's not perfect. We know that she actually does have flaws in reality. Yet in his eyes, she is flawless. So how can that, how can that be the case? We know both practically from knowing people, as well as from earlier on in Song of Solomon, that she's actually not flawless. She's actually not perfect. Remember, she even admits that to Solomon, to herself, to us who are reading along. So how can Solomon call her altogether beautiful and say that there's no flaw in her? He can say that because he loves her. He chooses to adore even the aspects that she does not like about herself. Notice what the king does here. He makes her his standard of beauty. She is flawless, and there is none above her. Husbands, look at what the king, look at what the husband is choosing to do here. His wife isn't perfect. She has flaws, just like every one of us. Every aspect of her is not photoshopped or airbrushed. But he chooses to make her his standard of beauty. He chooses to adore, appreciate, and desire even the parts that she thinks are unlovable. Even the parts of her body that she dislikes, that she's embarrassed of, that she calls flaws. And that's what Jesus did for you, church. He didn't love us when we were perfect. He didn't love us when we were lovely, when, when we were without flaws. But rather, Jesus loved us despite our flaws. He loved us when we were ugly. He loved us when we were not beautiful or faithful to him. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, writes about this. He says, speaking to, to married couples, we must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I am giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. He looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak this to your heart like that and then fulfill the promise that you have made on your wedding day. This is the thought that's going to get you to be faithful to your spouse and to only have eyes for them. Jesus loved you that way with a singular vision. When we were full of flaws, imperfections, he was faithful to us. And he didn't give up on you. He didn't find a new bride. He didn't make you, sell, make you clean up yourself, and he didn't make you make yourself beautiful in order for him to receive you. Husbands, your wife is your standard of beauty. Your wife, to you, defines what beauty is. Just like Solomon and Jesus do for their bride, your wife is your standard of beauty. My wife, she's shorter, she has blue eyes and light brown hair. So that's my type. Your wife is tall and blonde and has green eyes. That's your type. That's who you're into. That's your standard of beauty. That's your definition of what beautiful is. If she's pregnant, then that's what you're into. 
If she's lived a long, beautiful life, and she's graying and wrinkled, then for you, there's nothing more beautiful in the world. Brothers, when we do this, when we make our wives our standard of beauty, when we don't compare our wives to magazines and to billboards and to other women, when we do this well, we tell the right story with our marriage. Our God is faithful to his people, even when they're unlovely. Even when they're unfaithful, even when they desert us, or even when we deserve desert him, even when we are unlovable. Wives, do the same thing with your husbands as well, for sure. It's maybe even more important for husbands, but wives also do this as well. And also, I want to encourage you to accept your husband's compliments of you. We're seeing a passage where the, the husband is complimenting his wife over and over and over again. And I'm not telling you that you need to, to be dishonest. I'm not saying that, but I, I am encouraging you to accept your husband's compliments of you. Accept when he's trying to be romantic. Accept when he's pursuing you and, and trying to be very thoughtful. Thank him for caring. Thankful for him talking to you, for telling you what he loves about you and how he is attracted to you. And start to believe those compliments, even if it's hard. If there's anyone out there that gets to help you understand your true beauty, it's your husband speaking in to your life. But give you a little hint too, uh, wives. Most men in this room, there's probably a few, most men are not natural poets, are not songwriters, are not romantic to the core. And so when, when your husband does put himself out there, when he is vulnerable by trying to use poetry or by being really specific and complimenting your beauty, or when he tries to plan something romantic, or when he initiates with, with some of this beautiful language, try not to shoot him down. Because he's already insecure about it. He knows he's not great at it, but he's trying. And when uh, a wife continues to, to not accept his compliments, he's eventually going to probably give up. So I, I would encourage wives to do that. Husbands also do that as well. So wives, if your husband says you're beautiful, accept it. It's true. It's true of you and receive it. Help tell the right story with your marriage from your end and show how it describes the gospel that we, the church, the bride, we're beautiful in Christ's eyes because he says we are. Because he calls us beautiful and pure and flawless, church, we are. Godly sex is interpersonal and it's relational. And thirdly, we learn from song four, godly sex is others-focused. Worldly sex says it's all about me. It's what I get out of this relationship, this experience. Solomon says to his bride, we're going to take all night. He wasn't in a hurry, and it wasn't just about him. In verse 6, he tells her that he has all night, and he's not going anywhere. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. He takes his time, he's patient with her, and he tells her there's no hurry. They've got all night long. He patiently and slowly is going to her to explore her mountains and hills, intoxicated by her perfumes and their love. Whereas in contrast to that, porn, 
casual sex, pornography, lust, all those say that sex is actually just about me. It's about what I get out of it. It's about what pleasures I receive. While godly lovemaking says, your needs are more important than mine. How can I please you, my love? How can I serve you? For most couples, most of the time, men tend to be more like microwaves and women tend to be more like crockpots. Most of the time, it takes men longer to warm up and women a little bit longer, generally. And Solomon knows this, and he knows this specifically about his bride. He knows this, and he's willing and wanting to take the time. He forgoes his own desires to rush and instead focuses on his wife's needs and desires. He's creating a safe place for her. And remember what he does. He compliments her again and again and again, starting with her eyes, working his way downward, melting her nerves, making her feel special and desired and wanted. Not just her body, but her as a person. And making her feel like she's not just a means to an end. He actually does get to her breasts eventually, but he shows her that I'm, I'm interested in you, wife. Not just a part of you, not just an object of you, not just something that gives me pleasure, but I want you to know that I'm focusing on you. Sex for Christians is so much more than just receiving pleasure or just getting what you want. It's an opportunity for us as Christians to love sacrificially, to be focused on another, mirroring the way Jesus loves his church. Jesus denied his own desires and died a sacrificial, humble, costly death with us in mind. All right, now we're going to look at the, the divine side of this passage. So we've looked at the human side, now we're going to look at it through a divine lens. All throughout scripture, when God creates marriage, when he speaks of marriage, he says, ultimately, marriage, it's not about you. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. It is a gift, but it's ultimately not about you. It's ultimately about me as the creator of it. It points to me. It's a picture of how I'm faithful and loving and serving and protective of my love, my bride, which is, as we look in the New Testament, it's even more clearly described as Jesus' love for his church. Jesus' faithfulness, his covenant, his commitment to his bride. So the Song of Solomon essentially is a poetic retelling of the gospel. John Piper in his book, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, writes, God created us in his image, male and female, with personhood and sexual passions, so that when he comes to us in this world, there would be these powerful words and images to describe the promises and the pleasures of our covenant relationship with him through Christ. So God says he gives us marriage, and one of the reasons he does that is so now when we're looking at all different kinds of relationships, relationships but especially marriage relationships, we now have words, we now have images, we now have experiences, we now have relationships and feelings that help us understand Jesus' love, his commitment, his faithfulness to us. So as we read this love story in Song of Solomon, specifically in chapter 4, we're looking at this through a lens of Jesus' love for his church. We see Jesus 
saying this to his bride, the church. There's no flaw in you. There's no flaw in you. You are perfect. You might be asking, how does this describe me? I mean, publicly, I like to show people that I'm perfect, that I'm flawless. But in my heart, I know that I'm not. In my heart, I know that I have sin, that I'm a slave to it, that I have doubt and disbelief, that I'm selfish, that I'm prideful. When we really look on the inside, we know that we are not flawless. We, are no, we know that we're not perfect. But the truth is, if you are in Christ, this is true of you. Ephesians 5 Paul's writing to the church, speaks to husbands in verse 25. Husbands, love your wife. And then he defines it. How should husbands love their, love their wives? As Christ loved the church. So how, did, how did Christ love his church? Think about that. Paul describes it. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then he ends with, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So yes, it is talking about marriage, but ultimately it's talking about something even greater, even more than that. It's talking about how Christ loved his church. He denied himself. He gave himself up for his church so that she might be made holy, so that she might be made perfect, so that she would be cleansed and washed with water, rinsing off her ugliness, her stains, her sin, so that he might present himself a church that is, a bride that is in splendor, no spot, no wrinkle. She's perfect. In Christ, if you put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, all of you is made flawless. Just like Solomon is going through every single detail of his bride and saying, this is flawless about you. This is perfect. This is beautiful. It's the same thing with you if you are in Christ. Everything is made holy. Everything is made perfect in Christ. When God the Father looks at you, he does not see a Christian that's full of all these different kinds of sin. We see that in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 14. For by one sacrifice... Speaking of Jesus' death on the cross for the church. For by one sacrifice, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Christians, through his sacrifice for you, he has made you perfect forever. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. For those of us who have repented of our sins or who choose to do that today and put our faith and trust in our king, in our groom, he remembers our sin no more. Our ugliness, our flaws are gone. And we no longer have to make sacrifice for those sins. They're once and all paid for, atoned for, and are gone. This is the gospel in Song of Solomon 4, our passage today. Tim Keller describes the connection between the love 
of this couple here in the gospel. He writes, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Apart from him, there is flaw in us. We are imperfect. We are ugly. We're unfaithful. We're undesirable. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves, in our sinful nature, than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, if we're united to Christ through faith, we are more loved and more accepted than we ever dared hope. The Gospel Transformation Bible connects how Solomon's love for his wife is actually pointing ahead to Christ's love for his church. They write, For the husband, his wife is altogether beautiful. As much as his eyes are open to her, we might rightly label his love blind love. She's not actually flawlessly beautiful. Indeed, she sometimes speaks despairingly of herself. Similarly, God's love for us in Christ can be categorized as blind love. We know ourselves to be blemished with sin and unworthy of his affection. Yet, Christians are made beautiful, ironically, through Christ's bloody, atoning death. Through Christ's sacrificial love, he will present the church to himself, holy and without blemish. Without flaw. The second way that we see the gospel played out in Song of Solomon 4 is in verse 4. Solomon calls out to his bride, come with me. And just like Solomon does that to his bride, Jesus calls to you today. Whether for the first time to believe him, to come with him, to follow him, out of danger, out of the mountains, away from lions, away from Satan, away from sin and death, and into protection, into safety, into relationship with him. Jesus is inviting you. He's choosing you. He's calling you. He's inviting you out of danger into safety with him. You see this in 2 Timothy 2, speaking of Jesus. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death, our enemy, and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus calls you for the first time today or for the millionth time. He calls you. He saves you. If you trust in him, not because of anything we have done. In verse 9, He destroys our enemies, he destroys death, and he brings us to himself and gives us life and immortality through the gospel. So as we leave here today, what does this mean for us? How, how does the gospel and the gospel as we see in picture in Song of Solomon 4, how can we apply that to our lives, both sides, the human side as well as the divine side? First, the human side. First thing, make your marriage and your love life, a place of safety, a place of security, a place of protection. Have a very vulnerable, honest, maybe painful, maybe intimidating conversation with your spouse and ask, what, what fears do you have? What intimidations do you have? Insecurities. How can I help make our bedroom, make our marriage 
a place that's defined as secure and safe and full of protection. Secondly, make your spouse your standard of beauty. It's a choice. Define beauty as the spouse that God has given you. Choose to do that. Reflect the gospel in how your spouse is the definition of beauty to you, just like Christ chooses us, just like Christ loves us, regardless of our flaws and is faithful. And thirdly, let all of your relationships, all your relationships, not just your marriage, but let all of your relationships be described as others-focused. And so that when people see them, when you see them, when others see them, when the church views your relationships, they say, that's the way Christ loves me. He looks at me. He wants my benefit over his own. He gives up his rights because he loves me. His relationship with us is focused on what we get out of it at the cost of himself. Let all your relationships mirror that. And then on the divine side, first thing, see the gospel every time you see a healthy marriage. Whether it's your parents, whether it's your own marriage, whether it's a friend's marriage, whether it's someone at work or here at Hiawatha, when you see a godly marriage or an godly or an act of, of uh, godly love within a marriage, see the gospel in that. Remember that, hey, what's going on here is actually just a picture of the way God loves us, the way Jesus pursues and protects and looks over sin of his church, his bride. And again, for everyone, not just people who are married, if you're single today, you get the greatest marriage. You get what human marriage points to, what it symbolizes. When Jesse preached a few weeks ago, he talked about how if you would poll every marriage, even Christian marriages, even good marriages here, and you ask them, does your spouse fulfill all your needs? Is your spouse perfect? Do they uh, complete you? And if they're honest, they're going to tell you no. Human marriage is beautiful. It's a great gift, but it's not meant to complete you. It's not meant to completely fulfill you. Okay? But we have, everyone has that, single or married, we have that, that, that uh, proposal from, from Christ, our true spouse. He says, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to commit to you. I want a covenant with you. So whether you're single or married, you can have this, this ultimate marriage, this greater marriage, this marriage that humid, that humid marriage just points to and symbolizes. Secondly, if you are a Christian, believe what Jesus says to you. He looks to you and he says, in me, you are flawless. Your sins are gone. They're remembered no more. They're paid for. You're washed clean. And if that's not you today, if you are overwhelmed with your sin, with your despair, with your uh, ugliness on the inside, if you feel like you are very flawed, very imperfect, know that Jesus says, that he can make you perfect. He, he wants to make you perfect. If you put your faith and trust in him, if you repent of your sins and believe in his sacrifice, you can be wedded to him and he will grant you righteousness. He will call you holy. He will call you flawless, perfect. And finally, Christians and non-Christians, Jesus invites you. He tells you, come to me. Come out of danger. 
come out of death, come out of sin, come out of brokenness, ugliness, imperfection. Come to me and I will make you clean. Whether that's for the first time or the millionth time, come to Jesus for your righteousness, for your beauty, for your identity, for your security. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you not only tell us, I love you, but you show us that you love us. And you show us how you love us, the extent of your love. You do it through picture, through story, through relationships we see around us. And we pray that when we feel insecure, when we feel unloved, that we'd remember this story as we're studying Song of Solomon, as we see other marriages, that we would get our identity from being loved by you, being chosen by you, being made perfect by you. Pray this in your saving, beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.